Episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. It's what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. On today's show, I'm excited to be welcoming back a regular guest. His name is Doug Grotheis. I'll read you his bio real quick, even though I know for our audience uh, he needs no introduction. But Doug is a professor of philosophy. At Denver Seminary, he is the author of numerous books, including Christian Apologetics, Philosophy in Seven Sentences, Unmasking the New Age, and many others. He has also written for scholarly journals such as Religious Studies, Journal of Evangelical Evangelical Theology, Theological Society, excuse me, and Philosophia Christi, uh, as well as for numerous popular magazines. He is also a uh, frequent speaker and the uh, host of the podcast Truth Tribe. So, Doug, glad to have you back on. Thank you. Happy to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. I think that uh, I think that this episode makes five appearances you've had here on Filter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that puts you and Oz Guinness on in a small category of your own as uh, the most frequented guests here. I, I think that y'all are y'all are tied now with you coming on today. <laughs> So congratulations. <laughs> well, I haven't sunk the ship yet, uh, but so. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, uh, I'm excited to have you on to talk about this book. Uh, this is a book that's in, uh, this is your second edition um, to the series. They've had a couple of other authors contribute to this series, which is uh, uh, big topics in seven sentences. You got this series started with your book, Philosophy in Seven Sentences, which is one of my favorites of uh, your books. Um, yeah, I haven't read all of yours. I think I've read about half of your books. And from the ones I've read, Philosophy in Seven Sentences is one of my favorites. And so I was really excited to see this one coming out. But with that book, you uh, sort of kicked off this series for IVP. So uh, just tell us about uh, the, the the concept that was behind uh, you starting to write Philosophy in Seven Sentences, getting this series started with IVP, and uh, what's the goal for these small books? Right. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, The idea kind of came to me out of the blue. I noticed that there were these books that were pairing numbers and objects, like the history of the world in six wine glasses, or this was a theme that I kept seeing, where you'd have a number, you'd have an object, and then you would link Mm -hmm. it to a concept. I thought, that's clever. Uh, What do philosophers have? Well, philosophers have ideas. We have sentences. So I thought I would take seven sentences from seven different philosophers and use that as a way to do some Mm -hmm. philosophical theology and apologetics. It's difficult to write a good introduction. Uh, People might be familiar with the Oxford Very Short Introduction series. I think there are over three or four hundred of those now. And I've got a lot of them. Uh, on the one hand, you could say, well, an introduction is superficial and may not be very serious, but a good introduction is written by someone who knows the topic well enough to distill basic ideas in an understandable but thoughtful way. So that's what I have tried to do with this book. And the idea is, of course, not to be 
silly and say you can understand a religion in a sentence or you can understand a philosophy in one sentence, but it's more like a doorway into the religion. Hmm. And so we go through the doorway of mm -hmm. uh, Jesus saying, for example, before Abraham was, I am. Well, what does that mean? And how does that relate to Judaism? How does that relate to the nature of God and the identity of Jesus? So it's more like a gateway or a doorway into these ideas. And <clears throat> I try to make it very clear to the reader that this is an introduction, or another word for it is a, a primer. So it's not that this is the last word on comparative religion, by no means. It's one way, which is really the way of a philosopher of religion, uh, to assess six world religions mm -hmm. and uh, also atheism, because my first sentence is from Nietzsche, God is dead. So if Nietzsche is mm -hmm. right, then uh, all religions are false. So I thought it would be appropriate to address some of his critiques of God and of religion in general. And I've done a lot of work on Nietzsche over the years. When I was a young man, the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, I took a class called the History of Western Philosophy. My, I think it was like spring quarter, this is back you know, in the previous millennium when schools had quarters. And <clears throat> I, I was fascinated by Nietzsche. You know, I had uh, a bit of a Christian background, not too much. My parents believed in God, my mother prayed. And uh, I got interested though in high school in other philosophies, Eastern religions and, and so on. <clears throat> and when I got to college, uh, I found out about atheism. You know, I found out about Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud and other atheists, and I found Nietzsche to be very uh, compelling as a writer. He was daring. He didn't mince words. And uh, there's this famous parable in his book, which is called, the old title was The Gay Science. It has nothing to do with contemporary gayness. It means joyous. I think it's been retranslated, the joyous wisdom. Yeah. And there's a parable of a madman who comes into the town square and says, I seek God, I seek God. And they make fun of him and they say, where is he? Has he gotten lost? And then the madman goes into this uh, philosophical tirade about how we have killed God. And nothing is the same after you have killed God. Meaning, since there is no God, we have to admit it and we have to give up on all the beliefs that were contingent on believing in a personal creator designer, lawgiver, God. So he says the earth has been unchained from its sun and yeah. we're straying yeah. as if through an infinite nothing. So he was not the kind of uh, <clears throat> low-key, cheerful atheist, so to speak, that people champion today. He said, no, if there is no God, mm -hmm. then there's no purpose to human history. There's no afterlife. There's no providence. And so we have to rethink everything about existence from the ground up. So I find him to be a very compelling figure in that respect, very honest, very yeah. brave in a way. But uh, I take his case against religion, God in particular, to be very weak. Um, one of his arguments is hmm. that 
if there is a God, if we can just jump into this, if there is a God, then God should be more obvious to everybody. And this is called the hiddenness of God objection that has been developed quite a bit in the last 30 years Mm -hmm. in the philosophy of religion by a guy named Schillenberger. But Nietzsche brought it up over 100 years ago. And his claim is that if God is all-powerful and all-good and wants people to know who he is, then he should be more cognitively available. There shouldn't be so many atheists and agnostics. And he even goes after Pascal, because before Nietzsche, Pascal wrote about this idea of the hiddenness of God. But I think Pascal's explanation is much better than Nietzsche's. Nietzsche's explanation is there is no God. That explains the hiddenness of God. He's not only hidden, he's not there at all. And uh, Pascal's approach to this is essentially that God has given us enough evidence of his existence if we are willing to pursue it, but he has not made it so glaringly obvious that we can't turn our backs if we want to. And this is sometimes called cognitive freedom. Uh, Stephen Evans has developed this argument pretty nicely, and I have been saying it for many years with respect to Pascal. So I think that hiddenness of God meaning that there is no God is extremely weak. And then another problem with uh, Nietzsche is that he realizes that if heaven is empty, so to speak, and there is no basis for objective morality, then we are thrown back on ourselves. And he believes that only the very strong people will be able to throw off religion entirely and be their own people, be completely autonomous from religious influence and actualize their own power in an objectively meaningless world. So in an odd way, Mm -hmm. he was uh, a virtue theorist, but he didn't think everyone could attain to this virtue of courage and self-affirmation. Only a very small number of people could do it. And he had this idea of the ubermensch or the overman, the superman. And the yep. superman yep. is is under no constraint before the face of God. There's no moral law. Uh, strength may mean dominating others. So this perspective really leads to nihilism. Now Nietzsche thought Christianity was nihilistic. He thought the Christianity was anti-life. It was anti-body, anti-enjoyment. He completely got that wrong also. That was another one of his attacks on Christianity. Mm. Christianity, the Bible is very life-affirming, but it also affirms the fall. So we have to know where to say no to ourselves and where to say yes to creation and where to say yes to God. But Christianity uh, is one of the most, if not the most, materially glorifying religions out there because God created the space-time world. He said, it is good, it is good, it is good. Creates humans, says, it is very good. But now we are very fallen. So we need redemption through Christ. And we need, of course, to bend the knee to God. We have to bow before God as our creator and our redeemer. And, of course, that's a bridge too far uh, for Nietzsche because he, in a sense, wants to affirm his own deity, not in a metaphysical sense, but his own utter independence, his own utter autonomy, and start from the ground up. But 
with that kind of a worldview, you have no protection against uh, totalitarianism. That's an, a point I make, because the great totalitarian regimes of the 20th century are all atheistic to the core. Uh, whether you're talking about Mao Zedong in Red China or Stalin in the USSR or Pol Pot in Cambodia, they're all atheists. And I'm not saying they're card-carrying Nietzscheans, they were Marxist atheists, but they denied a transcendent moral authority. They denied accountability to God. They denied intrinsic human rights because that's based on a Judeo-Christian view that were made in the image and likeness of God. So I, anyway, I start, I start um, with an irreligious man, Nietzsche, although Nietzsche had some sympathy for Buddhism, interestingly. Now, Buddhism is not a theistic worldview. Hmm. It does believe there is a, a sacred realm called Nirvana and that the Buddha was enlightened, but he was not enlightened as uh, a prophet would be who receives a word from God because Buddha either was an atheist or was agnostic. So the first chapter of the book is a quick analysis of Nietzsche's anti-religious philosophy. And I argue that his attack anyway is unsuccessful. So, you know, let's go on now and really look at the world religions through the lens of, of one particular sentence. So, yeah, yeah. I, I suppose what Nietzsche shows, yeah, I suppose what he shows is that, um, that whenever there's no final authority, then whatever most powerful human authority can rise up will ultimately rule. Well, that's it. Yeah, there's no break yeah. on authoritarianism or even totalitarianism. And there's no sense of innate, intrinsic, inalienable human rights, to use the language of the Declaration of Independence. And, and maybe Nietzsche thought he could put the framework such that those kind of things wouldn't occur. But ultimately, his worldview does not allow for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, that shows, you know, one of the strengths of this book and um, that, that that sentence that's so famous from Nietzsche, God is dead, is uh, very often uh, taken out of context or and misunderstood or made very trivial today. But when you put it into its context, um, mm -hmm. it's it somewhat it helps you understand what he was talking about somewhat strengthens it but also makes it um more ready for a uh, a serious critique which is what you do in the first chapter yeah. since you well, talked about how he was sympathetic to uh since, since you were talking about how he's sympathetic to um buddhism i'd like to go into buddhism next um sure. i can't remember what was your sentence life is suffering yeah so we can yeah, go there that, next but if you had another thought on nietzsche no, I think we can go directly to, to Buddhism on that. Uh, there is a nice segue, although okay. I actually, I start with Nietzsche, then I go to Judaism, but there's a nice conceptual segue to Buddhism uh, because Nietzsche had some yeah. respect for it because he said that Buddhists take suffering very seriously and give us counsels on how to suffer nobly. And Nietzsche was not averse to embracing suffering if it was the path of self-affirmation. So uh, Nietzsche hmm. was not a hedonist. He didn't say that since there is no God, you should do whatever brings the most pleasure. He thought oftentimes pleasures were cheap and cowardly 
and that the heroic individual might embrace suffering for various reasons. But uh, Buddhism is based on the teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, who came to be known as the Buddha, which means the enlightened one, or the one who woke up. And he pursued wisdom as a noble uh, young man from a wealthy family, and he could not find it in Hinduism. And eventually he left his family, he sought enlightenment, and under the tree of enlightenment he discovered the Four Noble Truths. And the first of these truths is life is suffering, which you might think is a, is a non-starter for a religion. That's pretty dark, you know, life is suffering. But the second mm -hmm. is that suffering is caused by desire, by craving, because we don't have what we want or we want what we don't have. We're never basically satisfied. And craving uh, can only be dealt with by eliminating it, by eliminating this desire uh, entirely for things that we could not have. And then the fourth noble truth is that there is a way of discipline, disciplining the mind, disciplining the behavior, to attain freedom from desire or craving. And that ultimate state is called nirvana. And we have to recognize that nirvana is not anything like heaven in Christianity. It's nothing like paradise in Islam. In fact, it's not a person, place, or thing. It's a, it's a state of being. It's a state of being enlightenment, being enlightened, and being freed completely from the bounds of human, personal desires and frustrations. So, the, uh, as I said, Buddhism is either uh, atheistic or agnostic at the beginning. Now, there were later forms of Buddhism. Uh, that became pantheistic. Uh, Mahayana Buddhism talks about the Buddha nature of all things, and we can find this Buddha nature, this divine within. But that probably doesn't comport very well with the original teachings of the Buddha. And hmm. I try to take this uh, statement seriously, life is suffering. It doesn't just mean life can be difficult, life can be frustrating, but it means that embodied existence is suffused with suffering. You cannot account for embodied human existence apart from suffering. Right? It's built in, but actually it's not even built, because Buddhism has no creation narrative. Just life is suffering. And if you cling to this world, you build up bad karma, and that bad karma means you have to come back or be reborn in another form because you're still clinging to this futile, pointless existence. So the goal is not to live in a recreated world, which is the Christian hope and vision, but it's rather through mental discipline and behavior to free yourself from any entanglement in the world of matter such that you attain nirvana either after you die or some Buddhist schools say you could attain it even when you're still in the body. So uh, hmm. I want to compare this with the Christian view because Christianity of course takes suffering extremely seriously. We worship a crucified Savior but we also believe 
that while he suffered and died to atone for our sin against God, that he rose again from the dead and ascended to the point of supremacy in the universe, the right hand of God, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to recreate the universe. Now, those ideas are utterly alien to Buddhism. And often you find people who want to say that if you take the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Buddha, they're really saying pretty much the same thing. They're just using different language, different images, different stories. By no means. The worldview mm -hmm. of Christianity and Buddhism are completely apart. They're utterly distinct and different. And one way to understand that is looking at suffering, right? Because on the Christian view, human suffering and death comes about because of our first parents turning on their creator. And we have that account, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, where uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. They did the one thing God told them not to do. And because of that, death entered the world, disorder entered the world. And as Francis Schaeffer would say, we are, we're alienated from God, we're alienated from ourselves, our heart is wicked and corrupt, we're alienated from others, from our neighbor, and we're also alienated from creation. But in the final analysis for the one who comes to Christ, all four of those alienations or those estrangements are healed. So if you come to Christ by faith, accepting his atoning work on your behalf, which I exhort everyone listening to this to do as soon as you understand and, and can do it, your relationship with God is healed completely. You're justified. The righteousness of God is given to you through Christ. And there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But our inner disorders and our struggle with others and with the creation will not be completely restored or healed in this life. We have to look for what Schaefer called substantial healing, self-understanding, relational healing, healing with creation and society. But that will only be summed up in the eschaton in the end. But see, in Buddhism, uh, the eschaton, you might say there's, there's a personal eschatology, but there's no corporate eschatology. In Christianity, we believe that if you're right with God, you die, you are with the Lord, and eventually God will raise the dead. There'll be the resurrection of the just, the resurrection of the unjust, Daniel 12, 2, 1 Corinthians 15, and so on. And there will be a corporate dimension of the world of the redeemed and the new heavens and new earth and the sad reality of judgment for those who are not redeemed. But in Buddhism, there's no final account. Mm -hmm. The idea is you keep reincarnating until you get free of karma and you are no longer attaching to this world and then you attain nirvana. Now, nirvana in much of the Buddhist tradition cannot even be explained. It's just hmm. a world free of human suffering. But it's not a relationship with God. It's not hmm. a relationship with others. It's not uh, a restored city, temple, garden like we have in Revelation 21 and 22. It's really more negation. Mm -hmm. So it's negation of suffering, whatever that is. But to negate suffering... Yeah 
without a doctrine of creation, fall, and redemption means you're actually negating the human. Whereas in Christianity, when we, t we talk about suffering coming into the world because of human rebellion against God, and that comes down through the ages because of original sin. We're sinners by nature and by choice. But redemption doesn't mean to deny our humanity or to deny the importance of desire. Redemption means atonement and forgiveness and justification through the work of God on our behalf. And then you might say the restoration of humanity and the restoration of creation because in the beginning God said it is good it is good it is good so good is primary in the being of God his eternal uncreated goodness and that what he creates is good and sin only comes about through the rebellion of the creature but sin doesn't have the have to have the mm -hmm. last word but see Buddhism doesn't have that creation fall redemption triadic story or metaphysic it's just life is suffering how do you deal with suffering you get free from desire, eventually you can stop being reborn and attain nirvana. It's a very different metaphysic, very different story. And of course, if there is an infinite personal yeah. God, as Christianity teaches, then we have so much more to draw from as human beings. You can find moral similarities uh, between what Jesus taught and what Buddha taught on basic ethics. But that's because we're made in the image and likeness of God, and God put the moral law within all people. You know, Romans 2 teaches that. But when it comes to anthropology, mm -hmm. who we are, uh, soteriology, how are we saved, vast differences. And I think there's also a vast difference between what is real Buddhism and what is sort of the Western conceptions of Buddhism. Because I think you see a lot of people here in the West today who uh, who might even go so far as to call themselves Buddhists or just say they like Buddhism or things about Buddhism, take certain practices from it. But really what they're talking about is not the same thing that you're talking about with this, this set of beliefs. They're talking about something that's just like maybe they do yoga and they they just want an excuse to pursue anything that feels good because they think that's what Buddhism means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could call that Buddhism light, uh, Buddhism without the discipline and the structure, or even yeah. Buddhism without some of the essential teachings. One of the, the main teachings of Buddhism that I didn't mention is that there is no self. There is no substantial ego that endures through time and through change. The self is an yep. illusion. And so to be free, <clears throat> to be liberated, you have to deny the concept of an enduring self entirely. Of course, that's uh, philosophically very difficult to do with personal identity. And moreover, uh, what's left? I mean, what, what could be saved or what could be redeemed or what could be liberated if the self itself is an illusion? Uh, there are some Buddhists that... Yeah. <clears throat> that want to deny that teaching and still say they're Buddhist, but that's just the doctrine of the no-self is unnecessary and intrinsic and inexorable part of Buddhism. So uh, take it or leave it, you know, and if you take it, you need to give an account of it. Uh, There's a little bit of a snarky remark, but mm. years ago there was a book called uh, Thoughts Without Thinkers. Descartes would have hated that one, you know, I think therefore I am. 
but there was a book called <laughs> Thoughts Without Thinkers, written yeah. by a Buddhist. And I want to say, who collects the royalties, you know, for that book? Thoughts Without Thinkers. You, we don't really have a self. We have a collection of thoughts, yeah. but we're not really a thinker with a substantial enduring self. I wonder who gets the royalties. Why not send them to me? If there's no self, just, you know, it doesn't matter uh, yeah. where you send the royalties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. Uh, well, let's move on to a couple more before we get to the end of our time. Um, you also include uh, a few other Eastern religions, such as Hinduism, Taoism, uh, but you also include the three major monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, since Judaism and Christianity are so closely related um, to one another, why don't we talk about those? The, sentences, the sentence that you use for Judaism is, I am who I am. Right, and that comes from God's revelation to Moses in the burning bush that was not consumed. We have the account of that in Exodus chapter 3. And choosing these sentences mm -hmm. was challenging. In fact, I two weeks ago met with a friend of mine who knew a rabbi uh, named Joseph. And Joseph and his daughter and I and my friend Eric had lunch. We talked about Christianity and Judaism mostly. And I told him about this book. And I said, what sentence do you think I chose for Judaism? And they said, oh, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And I said, well, I know how significant mm. that is for Judaism, but I actually chose the divine name. And, and both the, the rabbi and the daughter went, oh, it was really interesting. And you, mm. you could say, well, is that tenden tendentious, right? Because uh, the sentence I chose for Christianity was Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up stones to stone him because he, a man, is claiming to be God. So I certainly could have chosen the Shema. But what I wanted to do is to show the connection, obviously, between the God revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures and in Jewish history of that time and Jesus. I wanted to do that. But still, in terms yeah. of metaphysics and worldview, at the heart of Judaism is... God, the God of the Jews, the God who chose the Jews and has been faithful. So the divine name is extremely significant in Judaism. They treat it with great reverence. They sometimes uh, will not say it, or if they write it, they might write G-D and not even write God. But what I wanted to emphasize was... Mm -hmm that the God revealed in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, is a God who speaks, a talking God, a God who has an identity and who communicates who he is and what he wants to do in knowable language. So I really look at the nature of the God there who speaks, who has an identity, so God is a self-reflective, cognizant being who's an agent and who's relational. And of course, that carries over into the New Covenant, the New Testament, uh, with Jesus as the ultimate prophet of Yahweh, and ultimately Yahweh mm -hmm. himself, as I argue. So I take the route of saying, uh, 
this text is extremely significant because this is the God who makes covenant with Abraham, who makes covenant with his people. So who is this God exactly? So I look at the the metaphysics and also uh, the epistemology. I've done a fair amount of work in that area in philosophy. It's a theory of knowledge. And I contrast, for example, this idea of God revealing himself as I am who I am, or sometimes translated, I will be who I will be. But the emphasis is that there's a personal, relational being who's communicating in terms that can be understood. But I compare that, Mm -hmm. for example, with Taoism. Now, Taoism is not a very populous religion. There aren't that many people in the world that identify as Taoists. However, there is a statement in Taoism that you'll often hear, either directly or paraphrased, or the notion, and that is, the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. Uh, that's in one of the major mm-hmm. texts of Taoism called the Tao Te Ching, uh, written supposedly by Lao Tzu, but Lao Tzu is a very shadowy figure. Uh, we don't know much about him. may not have even existed. We're not even sure. But uh, compare that, I am who I am, or Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am, meaning, before I came as Jesus of Nazareth, I existed as God, and I am still God. Compare that with the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. You know, Judaism and Christianity teach a God who speaks and hears and shows. So we can have the knowledge of our Creator through what He has said in history and what has been recorded in Scripture. And if you're talking about Taoism or uh, several forms of Hinduism, the idea is that the the ultimate, the absolute, is beyond language, beyond thought, beyond concepts. And this is supposedly a position of exaltation. And I want to say you undermine any positive descriptive language whatsoever if you say God is beyond language. How could you even apprise a being... Yeah or a state of affairs, or an entity that is utterly beyond words, thoughts, and language. You really can't do it. And Mm -hmm. uh, early on in my philosophical career, I uh, was mentored by a man named Keith Yandel, University of Wisconsin-Madison. He passed away a few years ago. But he was a very rigorous deeply analytical critic of this idea. It's called ineffability. And you find this notion of ineffability uh, in certain forms of Buddhism. You know, we can't really say what nirvana is. You find it in Taoism. You find it in certain forms of Hinduism as well. And it leaves us adrift in a world without a word from God. And I want to make that point very clear that if you follow one of these religious paths, you are following a wordless religion and you're thrown back on some kind of mystical intuition or experience of of what? Of nothing we could really specify. Mm-hmm. I've also uh, really been helped and ministered to by two other thinkers on this 
claim. And that is uh, Francis Schaeffer, who wrote a little book called He is There and He is Not Silent. God is a God who speaks. And then also in much more mm -hmm. detail uh, and in a very thorough way, Carl F. H. Henry, his six-volume set God, set, God, Revelation, and Authority, he has a long section about the God who speaks. So yeah. if the ultimate reality is silent, then we do not have the knowledge of who we are, how we ought to live, or what the ultimate reality is. But the good news is that God has spoken. So while this book is a introduction to world religions through representative sentences, and I want to be fair and accurate with the religions, I'm making some very significant philosophical and apologetic points in the book. And this is one yeah. of them. There is a God who speaks, and we can listen yeah. and respond to him. Yeah, being the God who speaks is um, is very core to Judaism. Um, you know, whenever we think, as Christians, whenever we think about uh, grace and what does God's grace mean, we uh, very often, and rightly, uh, primarily define it in terms of his forgiveness of our sins and uh, his pardoning our guilt and so on, is that being his grace, that, that unmerited uh, gift and favor. And absolutely. Uh, but in... The Old Testament, whenever you go back uh, into some of the earliest stories, uh, the, in, in those earliest conceptions of what God's grace is and how he shows his grace, it was in, he, in that he was the God who would reveal himself to people. He was the God who revealed himself to Abraham and who spoke to Abraham. This act of revealing and speaking uh, was seen as a, a fantastic act of grace. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, how would they how would they know him? How would they know how to follow him, obey him, uh, and delight him? You know, and, and this makes sense. Whenever you read uh, other sections of the, of the Old Testament, uh, most famously Psalm one nineteen, where they talk about delighting in the law, and I think that's usually difficult for us as Christians to understand. But whenever you think and remember, well, the law was God's revealing of uh, how to be in relationship with Him. Yeah. Then they would delight in that grace of his revelation. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to emphasize that uh, because uh, there is a lot of so-called spirituality today. People say I'm spiritual but not religious. I don't need religious institutions. Uh, in fact, uh, I found out last year that in a Gallup poll, only 80% of Americans say they believe in God. And that's way down. It used to be up in the 90s. And I can't verify this, but I saw a post on Facebook by Ben Shapiro recently saying it's down to 74%. And there is just abundant mm. evidence. There are many arguments uh, for the existence of God. I spent about 250 pages on this in my book, Christian Apologetics. But nevertheless, if you want to ignore uh, the evidence and the clues and the prompts that God gives you, repeatedly, inner and outer, you can. Uh, sin might have its way with you. But if you want to really address these issues thoughtfully and rigorously, there's every reason to believe that the universe was created and designed, uh, that there is a moral lawgiver 
who has made himself known in our conscience and that God's revealed himself in history. I'm giving a talk this Saturday to a group of students uh, just about the nature of the Bible. Uh, why should we believe it's inspired? And what do we do with supposed contradictions? But if the Bible is divinely inspired, which I believe it is, and we have reason to believe it is, not just because it speaks to us subjectively, but because of historical verification and because of prophecy, the wisdom in the Bible, so many things, then, you know, we have, uh, mm -hmm. if not a blueprint, we have a guidebook. We have a test book for life. Uh, we're not just thrown back to our own inner resources or, you know, God help us thrown back to just social norms or what is now popular or profitable in society. You know, we're given a, yeah. uh, as Schaefer used to say, an infinite reference point, an infinite and personal reference point to put our life into perspective. So when the crowd is going this way and God says no, then you don't go that way. You know, you have a reference point and you have a compass point. And so you can say no to what should be negated and you can say yes to what needs to be affirmed. And you, it's not just a matter of whimsy or mere opinion or I'm appealing to my authentic self, whatever that is. You have an authority, a trustworthy authority on how to live, what is right, uh, what worship should look like, what ethics should look like. So God does speak. And uh, that's one of the points yeah. that I, I try to make in the book, not just by quoting the texts in the Bible that say God speaks, but making an argument uh, that God has spoken and he's spoken truly and wisely in Scripture. And, uh, of course, when you're talking about Christianity and Judaism, we can view those as combined in a way in Scripture. Of course, Judaism is a different religion, obviously, but my view of Christianity is that it is the, yeah. the fulfillment of Judaism, and I make a short case for that. But then maybe just for a couple of minutes, we could talk about the other monotheistic religion I deal with, which is Islam. So yeah. much can be said on that, but just briefly, the sentence I chose was the affirmation that people make when they become a Muslim, and that is, there's one God and Muhammad is his prophet. Very simple, very straightforward. So I look at that, and you have to figure out what Islam says in relation to Christianity and Judaism, and there's overlap, but there's also antithesis. So the overlap is there's one creator God who sends prophets to the world, who is totally good, and who will judge the world. But the sticking point, right, and the antithesis comes with, well, who's a prophet and who isn't? Because in Islam, Muhammad is viewed as a prophet and the final prophet. So what came to him in the Quran, supposedly supernaturally revealed through the, uh, the work of Allah through an angel, is the final word. So Islam teaches, for example, that Jesus was not God, that he did not die for our sins, although it does teach that Jesus worked miracles and he was a prophet and so on. So we have a contradiction here. And <clears throat> to overturn the authority of Jesus we have in the New Testament would take 
some very powerful evidence, right? You would have to do two things. You'd have to discredit the Bible saying that Jesus is divine and died for our sins. And you'd have to establish a new authority Mm -hmm. that would be greater than the authority of Scripture. And the short version is that Islam cannot do that. Uh, We don't have any reason to think that where Muhammad, where the Quran contradicts the Bible, Muhammad is right and the Bible is wrong. Because he produced no new evidence. Uh, What we have in the New Testament on the deity of Jesus, on his atoning death, is just integrated into the whole New Testament. And matter of fact, in the Hebrew Bible as well, the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And the idea that what we have now has been corrupted, so these doctrines of the death of Jesus and the deity of Jesus have been added later. Jesus didn't originally teach it. That claim has no credibility whatsoever. So I was doing an interview recently with someone with Publishers Weekly, and I was really happy for that, because that is a, a long-standing and, and well-regarded publication. And uh, the interviewer, the journalist, was a little bit plucky, which I like. She said, well, in your book you say we need to be fair and civil and talk about our disagreements, and then you say Muhammad was an illiterate false prophet. <laughs> so how civil and nice are you when you say that, right? I said, well... yeah." Muslims claim he was illiterate, so that's not an insult. And the issue comes down to facts, reason, and evidence. So if Muhammad contradicts the testimony of Jesus and the rest of the Bible, and the testimony of Jesus and the rest of the Bible has more credibility than Muhammad, then I throw my lot in with Jesus and not Muhammad. Muslims can practice their religion in America freely. That's not the issue. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion is not the issue. The ultimate issue is truth and what we should believe and who we should follow. And, and I will follow Jesus uh, because of the arguments, the evidence, and also because of my life with Jesus as a Christian now for 47 years. So, you know, I'm willing to take a stand yeah. on that. Yeah. Yeah, well, once again, you know, this uh, this book is just a really excellent introduction for anyone who is wanting to explore some of these major world religions, um, the, you know, some that are Eastern as well as Western and even the irreligion of, uh, sorry, atheism, as you pointed out. Um, as I said before, you know, your first book in this series is one of my favorites and uh, full disclosure, I already told you before we started, but my copy came in yesterday, so I haven't been able to read this one in full yet but i'm sure it's gonna be one of my favorites as well i'd really recommend recommend people to go pick it up um uh even though it is uh technically ivp academic uh don't worry you don't have to be an academic to enjoy this book and get a lot out of it uh while you're at it pick up his philosophy in seven sentences as well um i heartily recommend both of them but you know i mean there's a there's a lot more we could talk about related to the book um and i was thinking it would have been fun to maybe uh, like maybe ask you on the spot to name a sentence for some other religions that aren't in here, but we'll have to do that for a, another time because we are running out of our time here. But uh, Doug, just want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and have you on here. So thanks for coming on Filter. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. 
hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the anchor.